Guts and Grit Podcast. A podcast where we discuss overcoming the odds, resiliency, and never giving up. Join us each week as hosts John Melson, Joy Vatrebeck, and Mark Renahan discuss coming back from failure and never quitting. Guts and Grit, it's go time. Welcome to episode three of the Guts and Grit podcast. I am your host, Mark Renahan, with my co-host, Joy Vatrebeck, and of course, our other co-host, John Melson. John, how are Hi, you today, John. buddy? I'm doing all right, Mark. Good Thanks. to see you, Joy. It's, it's uh, good to be here again. It's always a pleasure to see you, John. So we're going to jump right back into it because we're still on, we're on episode three of John's biography, which if you have missed the first two episodes, I suggest you go back and you listen because it's one incredible story of both guts and grit. Mm -hmm. But when we left off, John was just getting over to his first tour in Afghanistan. And we were talking to you, John, about the differences between Afghanistan and Iraq when we when we ended last week. But I wanted to touch there. So how many times have you been to Afghanistan, by the way, now? Uh, four times. Four times. And how many were you in Iraq for? Uh, three. Three times. So I, I know we discussed it last time, but what, what did you think was the, uh, I don't want to say worse, because I know going to war is never good, but what, what was the... Uh, what, is your, what are the differences, I guess, if people, if you were a lay person at home and they wanted to know the difference between Afghanistan and Iraq, what would you say? Uh, the, the cultures were similar. Um, our end state, what we were looking to do was winning, right? So that was pretty much the, the same, other than uh, we were in Afghanistan a lot longer than Iraq. Uh, I guess the way things worked out, uh, the, the Iraqi people were ready to stand up on their own a lot sooner than uh, how things were working along for progress with the, uh, the people of Afghanistan. Um, but in Afghanistan, uh, the fighting was different. Like I mentioned on the last episode, um, the, the fighting that I had been a part of in, in Afghanistan, uh, they, they were more, uh, more willing to fight us, uh, more willing to I would say sacrifice to be considered a martyr uh, to show that they could stand up against the, you know, the great American superpower. Hmm. Um, and it, what I will say about the people of Afghanistan versus the people in Iraq, I'm not pinning one against the other saying Afghanistan people are better than Iraqi people. But what I am, what I will say is they were in for the long haul in Afghanistan. They, uh, if, they had died fighting us, the Americans, the infidels. The, uh, they were okay with that concept of dying for the cause and that perhaps their second, third, fourth generation of bloodline would still be in the fight fighting against us. So they were in it for the long haul where us as I, I see as Americans in society, we want, we want immediate reaction. We want immediate feedback. We want, we want to get in and get out really quick. And where the Afghanistans, they were in for the long haul. They were fine to think their great great grandkids would still be fighting us. That's that's, uh, it, which is, uh, I, it's crazy. If you, I think it, I was trying to think of a funny word there, but crazy is the only word I can think of. I, I also know, John, that um, at that time we are allies in Afghanistan. I know, like a, I, Joy and I did a podcast series on Afghanistan mm -hmm. a while ago, mm -hmm. and we know that uh, a lot of people had uh, friends over there that they became close with. I know you had like a, a, 
interpreter that you became close with. Were the people, now was that in both places though? I mean, did you, did you get close with any Iraqi interpreters? Uh, yes, so, you know, when I got out of the Marine Corps, I lived um, with a, a Lebanese family in, in Boston. Uh, one of my childhood best friends, his family had taken me in after I got out of the Marine Corps, trying to figure out where I was gonna go with life. And uh, I got to learn a lot of Arabic living with them. And uh, when my initial tours into Iraq, um, I was able to share some of that um, language as well as when I was in Egypt, be able to speak in Arabic to some of the locals as well as our interpreters. And it, it really started to uh, break down some barriers with the interpreters that we were working with in Iraq. Um, they felt it was respectful that I was, that I had learned and I was trying to share my knowledge and, and learn more of the Arabic language. Um, so it, we had a lot of fun with it. Uh, obviously, uh, learning a language for the first time, you learn a lot of the slang, uh, a lot of the, as like an uncle, like in your shoes, Mark, um, you're not worried about the repercussions, teaching kids bad language. No, nope. get a kick out of it with <laughs> mom and dad might not think it's so cute. Um, so I, I got to share a lot of laughs with my interpreters because I learned some of the the poor language and we had fun with that. Um, I, I might slaughter this, John, but is it assalamu alaikum? <laughs> that is a, hello, I believe. Is that a what greeting? It so that is that is a Muslim greeting. Um, may God be upon you. Uh, and in so when you would say when you would say that, I would say walaikum salam back in return. God be upon you. Um, those are just common greetings. And like I was saying to you in an earlier episode, Mark, hey, I've taken Spanish. Uh, I've learned Arabic, I've learned Pashtun, which is what they speak in mm. Afghanistan. And sometimes I just get it all jumbled up and I'm <laughs> confusing Arabic combined <laughs> with Spanish, with some Pashtun. And some of the, some of the uh, foreigners I've dealt with, they just sit there and look at me puzzled, like they have no idea what I said. And I'm just, wow, I'm mixing it all up. I, I have it all mixed up in my brain. Uh, but we have fun with it. So no, not to take away from the, the fun topic, but... Um, and and I'm, I don't really have the right way to say this, but where was the, where was the fighting, do you think, a little, was it, I mean, I know it's war, so anywhere you go, it's horrific. Um, but did, did, was it, you know, when did you first, I know you had been in Iraq already, when did you first really start getting into it? I mean, I know you've received, uh, how many bronze stars do you have now, John? I know you're a very humble guy, but. Five. Five of them, okay. Well, I know you got five. When did you get your first one? Um, it, it, on that on that initial Afghanistan tour, okay, um, I got my first uh, Bronze Star on that deployment, and, and two Army Army accommodation medals for for valor as well for all the different uh, enemy contact that I've been involved with, with my team. Wow, excellent! So can, go ahead. Can yeah, I, um, yeah, yeah, just yeah. cut in for just a minute, just to back up a little bit, because when we did the Afghan series uh, podcast series, we asked some questions, and you mentioned the Afghans were in for the long haul. What are your thoughts on that as far as Americans want to get in and get out? Would we, do you think, in your opinion, would we have been better off getting in and getting out rather than going in for the long haul? Uh, in, in my opinion, just having been down working with the Afghan army and being out within some of the villages, some of the valleys where we operated in, um, it, it's just a different culture. So our outlook here in the United States, you know, we're looking at more established a democracy. You know, we have mm -hmm. we have federal, state, county governments. We're in for like Afghanistan. It's so separated 
there's like, you know, the Hindu Kush, it's part of the Himalayas mountains, right? They, it cuts right through the country of Afghanistan and it causes a lot of separation. Okay. So the people that would live in say Bagram, Kandahar, Kabul, the highly populated areas out in Western Afghanistan, Herat, um, they, they had to have, they had a lot of say in the government because that's the government was very much located and functioned in those big populated areas. Whereas out in the valleys, when we were operating, um, fighting against the Taliban and, and trying to work with those villagers and win over hearts and minds, it, it was very isolated and they have a, um, a tribal mindset. So Mark, your family and Joy could live on one side of a mountain me and my family live on the other side of the mountain and we may never have any dealings with each other. Mm. And if, and, and one of the obstacles I, I found was trying to get them in those isolated areas to try and think of the best in, in the overall big picture of Afghanistan. Mm. With that tribal mindset, they only, those village elders and the way that their culture was brought up, they're worried about their ability to farm, their ability to provide for that village. They didn't really, concern themselves with what's going on on the mountain on the other side of the mountain that makes sense okay no yeah, it does yes, thank you johnny were you uh were you a ranger yet when you went to afghanistan no i didn't go to ranger school until uh to april of 2008 all right so this this third tour was when this was 2006 Six, seven. 2006 seven so I, i'm we're whirlwind in it here but you come back from this tour how long were you home between this tour and the next one uh, I got home from, from that deployment. I was home uh, maybe three weeks. And then I was linked up wow. with uh, first the 175 Infantry uh, from Maryland. And I was with Alpha Company with those guys. Um, again, I volunteered and I got put with those guys in Maryland. And we did our training at Fort Dix. And then we went to Iraq. We went to northern Iraq, to Kirara. And that's the battalion commander that I had worked out um, that deal, I guess, to do what I was you know, what I, I kind of have a niche for, uh, training soldiers. So uh, I worked that deal. You let me leave to go to ranger school um, a week or two weeks earlier, and I'll be willing to train and, and prepare and take several of your soldiers along with me. And uh, he took me up on that. And that's, that's when I, so April of 2008, uh, class 0608, I reported to the National Guard pre-ranger. And then... Follow, I graduated that. It was two weeks long. Follow on straight to Ranger School. And then I graduated July, July 3rd, 2008. How, how long is the total time to become a Ranger? Uh, the Ranger course itself is uh, 62 days. Um, but most soldiers, I'm going to say probably 98% soldiers have to attend a pre-Ranger course before they attend. And those pre-Ranger courses can be from... 10 days to three weeks, it all depends. The National Guard pre-ranger course was 12 days. So uh, Six, my days. entire journey was 72 days. Okay, wow. Um, and so for those at home who, who may not know, a ranger is a little different than an average um, soldier in, in the military, if you want to touch on that. I mean, I know all the guys and girls who work you know, in, in the service are doing an incredible job, but a ranger is a little bit more elite, I guess would be the word. Well, the, the, the soldiers that serve in Ranger Regiment, and um, they, they are, they are extremely elite. Uh, I, I had the opportunity to attend and put in the hard work and not quit. Very close to it, to quitting, but I, I hung in there and graduated from Ranger School. 
So as a, a leader moving forward in my career, I was able to undergo that, um, push myself through. And because of that, I learned a heck of a lot about myself, what I can put up with, what I'm willing to do and try and, you know, even though everyone else is tired, wet, exhausted, got nothing left in them. And you learn the ability to pull everyone together to, to accomplish mission success. Um, Cause nobody goes to ranger school and graduates as an individual. It's, it's a team event. You get in there, as long as you don't quit, you're carrying your weight and you're willing to put out uh, and the guy to your left and right, just like everything else I talk about in the military, as long as everyone to your left and right is putting in the same effort as you and it's the, the best foot forward, we'll be, we'll be successful. Now, I assume, and I could be wrong, but do you need previous military experience before you apply for the Ranger School? Do you have to have it or yes. did I? do you have to. Like if so, I join the army think, next week, yeah. could I just join and say I want to be a ranger and then they send me to ranger school? Or do I got to like spend a year in the infantry or something like that? Okay, so there's, there's, it's like a loaded question. There's two, there's two different pipelines. If you want to join the army and become an army ranger, you can pursue that on your contract and you would go to basic training, you would go to infantry school, you go to airborne school, and then you would go to RASP, right? And that, that's ran by a ranger regiment. You will go through that, and if you pass RASP and you're selected, you will then serve in one of the three Ranger battalions in the United States Army. Um, and that can be right off. You could join right now, Mark. Um, you know, you keep training, and you could go do that right now off the street. However, even in Ranger Regiment, you have to, in order to attend Ranger School, you have to be like E4, which is a specialist promotable. So before you become a non-commissioned officer in Ranger Regiment, you have to attend and graduate Army Ranger School. Whereas anyone else out in the force, um, you could be a specialist, E4, and not promotable, but you are an absolute stud, whether it's male or female, and you're crushing PT, and you, you meet you know, the, the PT standard, you can submit um, a request in order to attend Army Ranger School. So that is afforded to anybody in, in the uh, United States Army, as well as we, we take in sister services as well. We have okay. Navy, Air Force, Marines come and attend Ranger School as well. Interesting. Uh, all right, so you're on your, you were, you had done four tours before you became a Ranger, did I get that correct? Yes. And that was Egypt, two in Iraq, and one in Afghanistan. Yes. All right, so now you're in Northern Iraq on your fourth tour. Now, was it going back the second time? I don't want to say easier because, again, going to war, although I don't know, I can't imagine is it ever easy. But were you more, at this point, you're on your fourth tour. Are you a little more comfortable in your, in your shoes, so to speak? I, I, would, well, I wouldn't say comfortable because a lot of people will take comfortable and transition that into complacency. Mm. What, it did, what I did is, uh, at that point, I had already started to develop a level of confidence in the things that I have learned what works, what won't work, um, and how to apply in a tactical environment these things that I have learned and acquired through my training, through Ranger School, as well as um, from all my previous deployments. And then to share that knowledge with those soldiers to my left and right, up and down. Um, when, that, when, I, when that tour, when I was in Iraq on that tour, a lot of the lessons learned from my previous tours really came into play and uh, when, when we were chosen, we had to go outside the wire. We say when we go up out into Iraq, um, as I said, outside the wire, um, 
my, my, I was a squad leader at that time. Like we would get requested all the way up from the battalion commander. The battalion commander was doing a movement. He was going up to, through, uh, from, up to Mosul. He wanted us with him. He was going up to Turkey. He wanted my squad with him. Um, the, there was a special forces team that lived on the other side of the camp that I had solicited and worked out some, some training opportunities with them. And they would train with my guys and to the point where they, they would want ours to go out and, and assist with like security elements for their missions in Northern Iraq. So the ability to have that level of confidence in your, in yourself, the confidence in the tactics, the things that we learn, we're going to use outside the wire. uh, It was definitely there. Um, So that's what I think each time I deployed and redeployed, I was continually learning more things to make whoever I was serving with make us as a unit um, more effective. Can you explain to our listeners what you mean by outside the wire? I know because my husband talks about it, but for those that don't. Okay, so when I say outside the wire, so a FOB forward operating base, you know, when you're on the base, you know, you're behind these walls, big fence, everything, you're somewhat protected, right? As far as you're inside a camp that has security around it, um, there's, there's means to protect you from just, you know, being out exposed to the enemy. Um, and there's only like one or two entrance and exits on that base. And depending on which base it was, it could be just a couple of hundred soldiers or it could be up to a thousand soldiers. Um, all depends on how big of a base it was. And so when you go outside one of those exits to go out into Iraq or out into one of these valleys, wherever you're working out of in Afghanistan, that is once you go outside that camp, that FOB, that forward operating base, that's what's considered outside the wire. Okay. On that same note, so let's say you're going outside the wire with your rangers. How many how many of you guys are going out at a time? Like if you're John, you're, you're Sergeant Melson and they, you just got orders to go out outside the wire to patrol, whatever. How many years are going? Uh, oh, can you say that? I don't, I don't want to start telling people how many of you guys go out on patrol. So I don't know if we can say so that. I, I can't. I, I can't give you exact numbers. Okay. Right? Yeah. No. But, but it's not. It's not secret information. Um, but you know, our enemies can look at our manuals and they, they can take a guesstimate, right? Um, but it all depends on what the mission is. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, that mm-hmm. makes sense. And mm-hmm. I just realized probably shouldn't be asking so questions. Gonna, the way you ask secrets. Yeah. What the mission is, and then we'll do the planning based off of what we're going to be tasked with, right? And the tasking will decide how much um, personnel will be involved, how much aircraft involved, how much uh, weaponry, ammo, now, John, were there any bronze stars on this fourth tour to Iraq? Uh, I'm trying to think. It's good that you can remember. You're like us here in the office. <laughs> we, we can't remember anything either. Um, yes. Matter of fact, yes. Okay. I would have been disappointed, John, if we had one without, but. <laughs> All right. So you're back from Iraq on, the, on your fourth tour. How long are you home this time? Okay. So I came back from Iraq on that tour, and that's when I spent my time in Ranger School. Okay. Right? So okay. April to July, right? I graduated in July, and then uh, that's when I found out my buddies had volunteered to go to Afghanistan without me. How dare they? Right? Yeah. I thought I was gonna fail Ranger School. <laughs> so I, I passed, I, I got on the same mission with them, and um, it was just probably five days, six days, before I was to leave for Afghanistan, 
which was in August now, August of 08. I graduated July. So I was home maybe, maybe a month, if that. And that's when uh, we had the, the motorcycle crash. Yeah, can we touch on that for a little bit? For those who don't know, um, when John was home, and I might screw this up a little bit, John, you were on R and R riding on, you know, you're riding your Harley or something uh, down over in Foxborough on Route One. No, no, I was down in in Dorchester. In oh, okay. Pontiac. And the Ponce Dev. The Ponce Bridge. Yeah, I think we talked about it on last episode, but I'll go over it real quick. So, I was in Army Pathfinder School down at Camp Edwards down the Cape. I had failed out that afternoon. They outprocessed me, and I knew I was going to be leaving for Iraq. I mean, for Afghanistan. So I got home and I had a custom built chopper and I was like, you know what? It's a nice night. I want to take the bike out, go for a ride, clear my head, feeling kind of bad about myself, not passing some army training. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to take a ride down Marina Bay, go get a bite to eat, uh, maybe have, a, have an adult beverage and, and just enjoy the scenery. And as I was going over the Neponset uh, River Bridge, there were headlights coming straight at me and they were off in the distance and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And then the lights flashed, it went out, and then I saw, I saw a crash. So then I pulled up and the front wheel on the driver's side was broke off and, and curled up underneath the car. And there was a girl trying to get out of the driver's seat. And I pulled up and she looked at me and I was on my motorcycle. I was like, are you okay? Her windshield was smashed, the whole front of the car was smashed. And she's like, yeah, I don't know what happened. But she was on the wrong side of the highway coming straight at me. <laughs> so then I looked up and I could see the motorcycle was just in parts just parts spattered all over the road. And I could see a, like a black Tahoe or Escalade pulled over and there was a couple people standing on the ground and I could see someone laying on the ground. They were standing over. So I pulled my bike up and I pulled over in front of the SUV. And as I stopped walking back to where they were, um, yeah, I could see, it, it, it looked like what you would see in, in uh, you know, the grocery store. It looked like a chicken breast, literally. And I looked down and was like, wow. That's that's part of this person's body. Wow. And I think it was his calf muscle, to be honest. Oh. And so I saw that and I just started getting my mind right. Because right before I left Afghanistan, I I had to treat a double amputee, got hit with an IED. So mm. I'm I'm seeing that and my mind's going back into like first aid mode, like in the worst conditions. And I walk up and there was a uh, two older w- women down. One was talking to him and the other was holding a blanket on what I thought was his leg. And I turned around to the older gentleman and I was like, are you calling the police? He's like, I, I got them on the phone now. And then I just started talking to the guy. I just wanted him to calm down, try and you know, prevent him from going into shock. Started talking, he told me his name was Mark, he got kids. He, was, he needed to call his wife and tell her that he was okay. And I looked back and the woman was holding the blanket down. And I had said to her, under my breath, I didn't want him to hear. I said, how bad is it? And she shook her head and I was like, I was like, how bad is it? And she lifted up the blanket and there was like mid thigh, there was nothing there. Mm. And you could see the blood all on the ground underneath the blanket. Uh, and right away I was like, this guy, he's gonna bleed out. And I, I didn't have a belt on, I'm like, what can I use for a tourniquet? I looked down and he had a belt around his waist. He was wearing a belt on his pants. So I pulled his belt off, wrapped it around his leg, got as tight as I could, twisted it around. I used my hand as like, like if I had a stick to twist it, I just kept twisting it around my hand and held it. And then um, finally the fire department, ambulance and the police showed up um, and they 
long story short, they they figured out at first they couldn't figure out why I couldn't walk away because they kept trying to push me, tell me to get away from them. I was like, I can't. And then when they finally looked down, they were like, oh, you got a tourniquet on. I was like, he's going to bleed out. So they came over it and they, they put something else on to keep the blood from coming out, right? Like a secondary tourniquet. Took them in the ambulance and off they went. And then um, I went to leave and the state police were like, hey, don't you go anywhere. So they thought because I was on a motorcycle and he was on a motorcycle, they thought we were out like partner riding, maybe out drinking and, and got in this wreck. And I was like, it finally came out with, with questioning. I was like, I was just driving by guys. Like this accident happened out in front of me. Um, can I go home now? And they took down my information and they were like, well, we might need to talk to you. And then, um, you know, a couple of days later, as you know, Mark, like, it got released and it ended up being in the, in the media and everything like that. Yeah, the, wow. the New England Patriots uh, named you, I believe, Citizen of the Year and you got a, an honoring at the, that's why I said Foxborough, by the way, because I'm remembering the Patriots uh. thing. Um, well, so. It sounds like, John, you might have had a failure, at, but you had quite a help yeah, I, I know, else I knew. after that. What, what did you fail? Did you say you failed at Camp Edwards? What was that? Uh, Army Pathfinder School. Is that like map uh, looking? What is that about? Yeah, what is that? It's anybody out there that knows about Pathfinder School, they know it's a lot of math. Mm. Oh, lot of math. Yeah, forget that then. Uh, so I, I attended three times in my career and I finally passed on my third time. Um, because I just, I didn't, it, it was burning me up that I couldn't pass. So I just I kept getting back in the ring, trying to fight it out. And I finally passed a couple of years ago. Um, but, uh, what it is of army pathfinders, they, the, their mission would be to establish helicopter landing zones for resupply, as well as to go in ahead of forces to establish helicopter landing zones, as well as drop zones for paratroopers. Right. So like in world war II, they had jumped in prior to any any of the big airborne operations, and they would determine and mark so the pilots could see where to drop the paratroopers on their missions. So they had a, the Army Pathfinder back in World War II and, and in Vietnam. It's an extremely dangerous job because they were they were in on their own trying to establish a foothold for follow-on forces to come in to what they can establish for a landing zone or a drop zone for paratroopers. Okay, so now that I have it right, you're a ranger, a sapper, and an army pathfinder. It's been a long career, we'll say. <laughs> All right, so, so now- Those are qualifications I have. Okay, yes. okay. So now we're, we're, we're done rescuing people. We're, we've, we've come back from Iraq. We've got our rangers out of the way. Now we're going on to deployment number five, I believe. Yes, and that was so with uh, the Maryland guys to Afghanistan? No, Maryland was Iraq. Oh, I'm sorry, time, yeah. So this now, time I was with- um, the 33rd BCT out of Illinois. Um, I went, we went to Iraq and again, I was embedded with the Afghan army. I went over to be a, a tactical trainer with the Afghan army. Uh, we got over there and uh, the Colonel, he had said to me, uh, he said, you used to be in the Marine Corps. Uh, you already done this mission. Uh, I need someone with your ability to be able to work with the Marine Corps and with the Afghan army. I have a Marine Corps special operations team in Farah, Afghanistan, at Farbraskola. I'm going to send you down there, be part of that, that um, US Army embedded team. And you'll, you'll hopefully improve the relations within that whole element there because you've, you've been in both services as well as you've already executed this mission with the Afghan Army. And I went down there and I built a, some uh, really great rapport with the Marine Special Operations um, as well as with the Afghan leadership 
um, because I still remembered some of the Afghan leadership I had worked with previously, and they were familiar with them, and they, it, which reinforced a lot of trust uh, with the Afghans to listen and, and validate what I was trying to train them on and to help keep them alive and effective at killing the Taliban. Uh, so it, it was a great, that was a great tour. Um, I had some amazing, amazing teammates. Uh, and the, the, the one thing that is a common factor throughout my entire career, uh, I think both of you could, could uh, appreciate that, is that the, the caliber of people I was surrounded by uh, made me look really good. Uh, I, I joke around and say I'm good at push-ups, but the, my successes <laughs> on the battlefield, I mean, it's because of the, the, the hard work and, and the commitment of these great, great soldiers. Mm. I, I was lucky and, and fortunate to have that, that caliber of people around me. Um, so I could never take away any of their hard work. I, I couldn't take ownership of any of that um, other than that I got to be there with them. Yeah, I know. I know that there are a lot of uh, um, articles on on you on, you know, your, your uh, I don't want to say exploits, I guess, while you were in the military. And I, I read one that was really interesting. I believe it was when you were with the Mad Dogs, maybe was the name of the group. But it, it was definitely it was a story. I believe it was ah, I don't want to say Afghanistan. I think it was Afghanistan when and your guys were cut off. And, you know, but the thing that I got out of the whole article is like you were all such a team. Um, and that, you know, the guys, your guys, I remember like one of them, was, I laughed hysterically. He said that when you arrived, he was no longer afraid of the Taliban. He was more concerned about you getting <laughs> mad at him. So he was like, they were all the guys were like, you know what? Screw the Taliban. Sergeant Melson's here now. So we better do what we're trained to do or we're going to deal with him. And I got a huge kick out of that. But I mean, it kind of told the story of, you know, you, you're all a team Same and one. you're all working together. So. Yeah, that, that, that was my 2011-2012 deployment to Afghanistan. Uh, I was a platoon sergeant then. And, uh, and I'll tell you, some, some of my best experiences with that, uh, a lot of my family and, and close friends that are not in the military, you know, they're like, why don't you retire? Why don't you get out? You know, you could make more money if you get out. And it's, and it's never been, it's always great to get a paycheck. Don't get me wrong. But the level of fulfillment and to see... Uh, how those soldiers had changed as, 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 as junior soldiers becoming leaders, as leaders becoming great leaders, uh, as well as these were young, a lot of young guys and, and watch them grow up. And, and I like to think like I planted some really positive seeds uh, for them to grow up, as we mentioned in an earlier episode, like manhood. Mm. Yep. To watch those, I'll say kids, but by no means, these were men. But I'm saying kids only because I'm, I'm going to be 51, right? So I look back at these guys, 18, 19 years old, they're like kids, right? But they grew up in, in, in such a fast amount of time, but in a positive way. And to think like, you know, I, I, I may have influenced that in some aspect, right? That, that level of fulfillment to think like, you know what, I'm giving back. And I'm setting these guys up for success in life, as well as if they choose to stay in the military. And a lot of those guys have really, really moved on in life. And they've been very successful, both as, as a dad, as opening up their own business, uh, getting into other forms of government, law enforcement, mm -hmm. fire, uh, some staying in. Um, and they've stayed in touch with me. 
and it's nice to hear nice things that they have to say, but I, I know like at the time when I was training them, they probably wouldn't have had such nice things. <laughs> that's that, I have to say that's very commendable, John, as far as giving back versus going for the money, because I used to work for an organization that sent contractors over to work with our troops, and they did make quite a bit of money. So you probably yeah. could have. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's you know, you, you, you're an instructor kind of now, correct, Johnny? Uh, not right now. No. Okay. So at one point, you, do you, did you ever instruct rangers? Yes. I was a ranger instructor. After that deployment, the 2012 deployment, I came back to Massachusetts. Um, I was having a hard time finding some work. Um, and uh, it, it got mentioned to me that there was opportunities to go down and work at Fort Benning to go down and possibly be an aerosol instructor, be a pathfinder instructor, be a ranger instructor. And uh, I, I submitted my my packet, put my name in the, in the hat, see if I got selected. And the leadership at the National Guard Pre-Ranger course remembered me. Uh, and they were like, yeah, we want you down here. And I, I went down and I certified as a ranger instructor over at the Army Ranger School. I would, I would also teach at the Army Ranger School as well as I was an instructor at the National Guard Pre-Ranger. So I would bounce back and forth. And it was, it was an amazing experience, very fulfilling. Right, to, to be at those graduations, 60, 70, some soldiers, six months they spent in ranger school. They just couldn't quit and they didn't want to leave without becoming a ranger. So you see them six months later at graduation and they're still remembering everything you said to them. And like, I made it through, Sergeant Mel said, I remember what you told me and I just couldn't quit. And it, it's those times like that that make it, make it all worth it for me. It's almost as if they used a little guts and grit yeah. to get through Ranger School. <laughs> Which, you know, it brings us to, I, I, I want to get back to another topic, but like, you know, one of the things that you and I were discussing when we first discussed this show is like, you know, manhood and, and it's kind of how it's in today's society and it's a little different. Like it's, it's not looked upon as it used to be where like, you know, it's, it's, it's great in my, just to see a kid who's saying to himself, I'm going to spend six months in this damn ranger school. If it kills me, I don't care. I'm going to get mm -hmm. out of here and become a mm -hmm. ranger. That is, that is something that I think we're lacking a little bit today. I don't want to. I don't like to take overall shots at generations of, of kids because I know younger kids who are, you know, I'm sure you know rangers that you deal with now who are half my age who are, you know, all a man they could be. But it's definitely a a little bit of a different time. And, and when we get to later shows with guests, we, we plan on touching on that. But one other thing I wanted to get at, I know we, we had a lot to discuss in the military, but you were also a sapper. Um, and I don't know if there are many civilians out there, who I, I happen to know what one is, but who know what a sapper is. So could you maybe briefly tell us what a sapper is? And, I do and, not. And how, yes. You don't know what a sapper is? <laughs> no, I do not. Oh, okay, well, it's, it's cool. So he'll tell you real quick. Okay, so I'll make a comparison. Um, it, for a very long time in the Army, uh, the, the premier leadership school for an infantry leader was to attend and graduate Ranger School. Right? And so in the engineer regiment, as a combat engineer, um, those are guys that go out and like on Save It Private Ryan, the folks that had to go in ahead of the infantry and blow up the obstacles so the infantry could come through. Those are combat engineers. So they're, they're right out in front. They're piercing through the enemy's defenses right there with the infantry. And so on the infantry, the Premier Leadership School, now it's all of the Army, Premier Leadership Schools, United States Army Ranger School. For the engineers in their world, their Premier Leadership School is Sapper School. And Sapper School is very similar uh, to Ranger School, 
except it's not 62 days. They condense 62 days of what you would experience in ranger school. They condense it down to 28 days. And with uh, common engineers, you you are what would be considered like an SME, subject matter expert on demolitions. So you go through all the tactical training, mission planning, mission execution, loss of sleep, loss of you know, food depri sleep deprivation, food deprivation, um, just unrealistic times that you have to get things done with to st instill stress upon you. And then you still have to know all your math, your math calculations and the proper amount of demolition in C4 and the different types of demolition apparatuses you need to construct based off of the obstacle that you need to destroy in order to go ahead and, and continue an assault on the enemy. So Sapper School is like Ranger School, but for combat engineers. And uh, they really, they thin out the herd there. That's for sure. They'll find out both of those schools, if there's any quit in you, either one of those courses is going to find it in you really quick. It, 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 how, uh, so when, how old are you? Should I say, when, when was Sapper training? When did you do that? Okay, so I went to Ranger School. <laughs> I went to range school when I was 36, graduated 37, just because of the time of year, right? Um, and I went to Sapper school when I was 42. And now when you're 42 in Sapper school, are you one of the older, older people in school, or is it, is it a mixed? Like, you know, I, I, I think of, like, you know, ranger school is probably a lot of 19-year-olds and 18-year-olds, and you're 36, 37 in there, right? Right. So it, 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 and that was my big pushback to the colonel when he offered me a chance to go to range school. I said, it's a young man's thing. You know, I'm in my mid thirties. Uh, you know, I just want to continue doing missions and, and, and be effective at killing our enemies. Um, Cause that's why I joined. I joined during wartime in order to serve during war and not to, I didn't know about all these other opportunities. I, I didn't, I wasn't thinking about those things. Um, but yeah, it was majority, a lot of younger, younger men uh, were attending ranger school when I went. Um, when I went to Sapper school in my class, I was, I was definitely the oldest, probably uh, 15 years, wow. maybe. Um, wow. but I got to hand it to the, the Sapper instructors. I mean, a lot of them are great friends of mine. Hey guys, awesome people. <laughs> I met uh, leaders, but, but they made sure they, they reminded me every day, you know, how old I was. <laughs> and I, I thank them for that, for reminding me. <laughs> that was, uh, I believe I met one of your instructors, Jeremy Cole. Yes. Yes. Cole, yeah. Yes. Awesome yeah, absolutely. He does the Soul Survivor Outdoors now. So I, I see them on Facebook yes. all the time. Still, you know, he's out there with guts and grits, still, you know, getting forward <laughs> and, and doing his thing. So, John, we're coming to the to the end of today's show. But I wanted to just kind of do a recap for those of you who haven't seen episodes one and two. We, we went over John's life from, you know, when he was a little kid up until now. Uh, it is an incredible story. If you haven't heard the first two episodes, I would suggest going back and listening to them. It is amazing what John has overcome in his life to reach the pinnacle of mm -hmm. his you know, career. I know he would deny that because he's the most humble guy you've ever met. <laughs> so, John, you did nine tours. One was in Egypt, four in Iraq. How many were in Iraq? Three, three in Iraq. Three in Iraq and, and then in, and the rest in Afghanistan. Yes. You have five bronze stars. I know you don't like to talk about this, but I'm making you. You have five bronze stars, right? So one of the things that I know you've skipped over, and I just wanted to bring up because, I, I, A, it's a difficult subject, but 
a part that a lot of people don't realize when they're talking to John is that during all these tours, I'm assuming you lost a lot of close people uh, when you were overseas in, in combat and in other ways, and that has affected you, but you have managed to, you know, continue to go on. It's one of the most admirable things about you, I find. Um, the career that led you up to where you are now, um, you know, do you have any regrets or are you, are you right where you think you need to be? You know, I, I believe, I, I was raised Catholic, but I'm not gonna Bible thump and, and preach um, uh, Catholicism to anybody. Um, but I do believe in, in, in God and Jesus Christ. And like when I was diagnosed uh, with cancer, and uh, just the fact that I was trying to enlist is why the, the cancer was even discovered, right? So mm -hmm. if I didn't try and enlist, I would never know when I had cancer. And, and at that point they were giving me like a like a five-year expiration date, you know? So I chose to have the surgery and, you know, I, you know, I prayed, I prayed to God and said, you know, if you can get me through this, uh, this is gonna be a second chance at life and uh, I don't wanna waste it. And so uh, I have a lot of passion for the fact that I, I even was able to in, survive and endure that kind of surgery to the point where I was granted the ability to serve again, get back in the uniform and, you know, even though I, I've had some, some pretty bad speed bumps in, in life, um, I, I've used that to energize me again. I'll mention manhood again, is some of these younger soldiers making some really piss poor decisions and maybe didn't have that, that stern male role model that would stand their ground and, and tell them, I'm not gonna accept that from um, Knowing the places I bid, the debt that I had to pay back to society, I didn't want to see any of these kids see the look on their mom and dad's face of disappointment because they made some bad choices. And if I could instill maybe some fear, instill some empathy, like, hey, I was, I was once a young punk like you, you don't want to keep going down that road because you're going to end up in a place I know all about and you need to stay away from there because there's so much better things to do with your life. And the idea of, like I mentioned, that just look of disappointment on the people that matter the most to you is, it, it's crushing, you know, to see, to see the letdown on people's faces when they look, they look at you, you know, to, to be able to do so much and you let them down by making poor choices, right? And so I really lean hard on the soldiers who serve with me trying to keep their moral compass correct and, and letting them know, you know, like been there, done that. You don't want to do it. And, and I think, uh, I, I make jokes of it, Mark, when we were kids, there was a program called scared straight mm -hmm. early seventies. Right. Um, I, I call it, I call it the John Nelson scared straight. Like <laughs> plenty of times I've had some one-on-one -on -one meetings. Um, got to get my point across. I didn't, I didn't want to see somebody end up in a bad place because of poor choices like I've done in my past. And they've, they've turned out amazing. Really great, great guys, great gals. Um, and, I, I, you know, my, my passion for that, to give back, like I was mentioning earlier, Joy, mm -hmm. to be able to give back and contribute, like, hey, it's time to grow up. Uh, you're gonna have to own your decisions. Like, if you make a poor decision, listen, this is what could happen. Uh, you may run into someone like this and you're not gonna wanna, you're gonna rather not being in that bad place. And 
you know, look at all the opportunity, you know, you have. One thing uh, I, I'll mention is like a lot of guys, they, they ask me, you know, I don't know, maybe I want to join. I don't know if I want to join. And I'm like, look, you have an opportunity by coming into the military to recreate yourself. You might be a knucklehead back home. You can leave that behind and you can start fresh all over, go through basic training, become a whole new, better improved version of yourself. Right. And that's, that's some of the conversation I have with some of these young soldiers. Like you have a great opportunity. You got a chance to earn some college. Uh, you have a paycheck on the first and 15th of every month. Uh, sometimes you got, you might get your feelings hurt, just own it and realize that if uh, I ended up hurting your feelings, it's because I'm trying to keep you on the right road. Yeah. I don't gain, I don't gain anything at all by making someone feel less than I want. I want to promote people to become better. Right. So sometimes just like myself, sometimes we have to get put in our place to be reminded, Hey, we're making poor choices. Well, John, you're certainly an inspiration and I overcoming everything you have gone through, whether it be bad choices or something that's not your choice, like the cancer. Um, what stuck in my mind was what you said, even on the last episode and again this time, but that your footsteps seem to have been divinely set out in front of you. Yeah. And as a former you know, Catholic from the neighborhood, Johnny, I, <laughs> I, I also I, I don't want to sit in Bible thump, but I, I believe, you know, it is a little strange that you went to, to go sign up and then they happen to find the cancer. And if you didn't, yep. uh, you know, and then your career, it's almost as if another power said this guy is going to go on to do great things uh, in the military. And that's how it, you know, kind of played itself out. So I, I believe you were divinely led. You were divinely I, led. as well. Although I, I think myself uh, and all, all of American citizens are glad that you were led that way. Yes. And I think all yes. enemies of America are probably a little bit upset <laughs> at that uh, development. But anyway, so for those of you who are just tuning in now, we spent the first three episodes going over John's amazing life uh, and career in the military. Uh, he is currently now, where are you, are you, where are you now, John? You're at Fort. I know you're moving around a lot. I'm at Fort Benning, Georgia. Fort Benning. And that's probably there last week, too. And I already forget because I'm turning 50 and losing my mind. I think he actually moved. Yeah. So anyway, um, we're going to be coming to you guys again next week. We're going to have our first special guest coming on. We're going to start to discuss guts and grit and manhood and just, you know, have a little fun about life in general. We like to have a little fun here, too. Uh, for those of you who are just joining us, again, this is the Guts and Grit podcast. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Podbean, all of the local stuff. We'll put it in our Facebook underneath in the comments where you can listen to our show. We thank you so much for joining us. John, you're going to take us out with uh, a little wisdom and your favorite saying? <laughs> sure will. Uh, one, I'd like, to, I'd like to go ahead and send out a shout out to those guys that spent the last two weeks uh, taking me in under their wing absorbing me with their training programs, doing PT, and out there shooting some nice new weapon systems. Uh, I was up at uh, Fort Bragg the last two weeks. I was with 2nd of 501st, Bravo Company, Geronimo, Black Horse, awesome, awesome soldiers. Had a blast up there. Thanks, thanks guys, for having me up there. Um, and, you know, they were up there. Every morning, Mark, motivating me, going out there, doing extra miles, lifting extra out there, putting in the time, grinding, and doing what we always talk about, right? You, you always hear. Trained to be hard to kill. 
<laughs> well, everybody, thank you so much for joining us. We will see you all next week on Guts and Grit. John, have a great week, my brother. I will talk to you soon. Take care, John. Everyone have a great week. Bye-bye. Thank you. See you later, Mark. See you later, Johnny. Talk to you soon. Guts and Grit. Like, subscribe, comment, share.